Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to The Durst Show. Look, I don't know what happened or didn't happen in that dressing room in Bergdorf Goodman a quarter of a century ago, and, and, and neither do you and neither do any of the jurors or the judge. The question is, can you have a fair trial concerning a denied allegation that happened so long ago beyond the statute of limitations that existed uh, at the time of the alleged uh, events? Let's assume hypothetically you have a situation where somebody accuses somebody of something and the person was in a different part of the country at the time and has American Express records and phone records and uh, other records that could prove that uh, he or she was 3,000 miles away. 25 years later, those records don't exist. And so how do you disprove uh, he said, she said allegation? How do you particularly disprove it based on a claim that you, you, you weren't even there? I mean, this is something that I know a little bit about because I was accused um, by a woman I'd never met, never heard of, of uh, having sex with her 20 years ago in uh, 2000, 2001. And I was able to produce uh, massive records of where I was every single day because it was only 20 years ago, although there were some records that uh, were, were obviously uh, not, as, not as good as, as others, but I was able to, to do that. Um, uh, when you go back 25 years, it's, it's, it's awfully difficult, especially if you don't know you're being accused. You don't save the records. You don't try to call witnesses. I mean, I don't know. Again, the facts in this case was uh, Donald Trump alone when this alleged event occurred, if it occurred at all. Um, did he have anybody with him? Has he ever been to Bergdorf Goodman? Does he have records of having uh, been there? It's very, very difficult to reconstruct events a quarter of a century earlier. It's also unfair uh, to expand the statute of limitations. Uh, the statute of limitations should be what it was at the time that the events uh, occurred. Um, but even in the criminal law, which the consequences are obviously more serious, even in the criminal law, the government has the right to expand the statute of limitations, but only, only, if the statute of limitations hasn't yet expired. So, for example, if there's a five-year statute of limitations in a criminal case and six years have gone by, they can't then retroactively say, aha, but now the statute of limitations is 10 years or, or 25 years or forever. You can't do that. But if only four years have expired and there's still a year left, then you can make the statute of limitations go back five years, another 10 years. I think that's wrong. But the courts have held that that's uh, permissible. I think once a statute of limitations has been enacted and a person does something, uh, he or she is entitled to rely on that statute of limitations remaining unchanged. Um, but that's not the law today. 
And we're seeing a number of states retroactively expand the statute of limitations, particularly in sexually related offenses, because there's so much pressure to do that. Uh, now, I can see that with children, if you have a young child, and there are issues of memory and all of that. But here you have a situation where you have a mature adult in a serious job uh, who could easily have filed uh, a complaint uh, a day after it happened, a week after it happened, a month after it happened. Um, she could have filed a police report. Uh, she could have gone to a hospital and sought medical attention. She said it was very painful. But none of that happened. She did claim she told a couple of people, and we'll, we'll hear how that, um, how that develops. That's, you know, that's, that's significant, significant uh, evidence. Um, but the judge, you know, this is a, a he, she case, essentially. And the judge is now putting a very, very strong thumb on the scale uh, against uh, Donald Trump. Again, I don't know what happened. If it what happened is what she claimed happened, he deserves everything he gets. But um, the judges now said that the jury will hear um, the infamous tape where uh, um, then-candidate uh, Donald Trump told um, this announcer, uh, Bush, um, oh, when you're famous, you know, women will allow you to touch. And then he talked about their private parts. Um, the prejudicial impact of that way, 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 way outweighs its probative effect. And it will prejudice him enormously. It will create the impression that he's the kind of person who could do that. But people don't do what they say. Uh, people's statements made um, uh, years after an event or years before an event um, are, are, are of very little relevance as to whether or not a person would actually do something. Uh, and of course, in that statement, he didn't say anything about raping anybody or forcing anybody, quite the opposite. He said foolishly and stupidly and wrongly that women welcome, welcome that. And uh, that would uh, uh, be very inconsistent with what with what he what he did, uh, what he is claimed he did, and so uh, you know, uh, this is uh, a case that um, um, you know has some real problems. Uh, again, uh, tremendous sympathy for any woman who's gone through what this woman claims she went through with with Donald uh, Trump. But in America, you have to prove your allegations in a court of law, um, and 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 the other issue is. You know, there are two bases for the suits. One, she's essentially claiming she was sexually assaulted all because New York expanded the statute of limitations uh, for a short period of time. And she came within that window to file the lawsuit. But she's also filing a lawsuit claiming that uh, recently um, within the statute of limitations, she was defamed um, by Donald Trump, who denied the charges. Now, there are several elements to that. I don't think denying charges should ever, ever be defamation. Again, um, as soon as I was falsely accused, I immediately denied the charges. I immediately said there will be no photographs, there will be no witnesses, because there can't be photographs of witnesses to an event that didn't occur. I immediately said I would waive all privacy interests, all rights, let everything be out there, let everything hang out. Um, and, you know, but the courts have allowed lawsuits to be brought based solely on the claim that a person denied serious accusations against them. 
that's wrong. In America, you should have a constitutional right categorically to deny a serious accusation against you. Now, Trump, uh, according to the allegations, went further and called her a nut job and said she wasn't my type. Wasn't my type, of course, is not defamatory. Calling her a nut job, you know, that's a close case because obviously it's not a literal term. It's a term that means mentally deranged, and he wouldn't have any basis for knowing that, especially since he claims he, he didn't know her, never never had any in, encounter uh, with her. Um, but th there are really serious problems with being able to sue somebody for defamation, essentially for denying a claim that may turn out to be false. And if you do sue for defamation and you're a public figure, and in this case, it seems to me both of these people are, are, are public uh, figures, you have to prove malice, which means you have to prove that uh, that Donald Trump uh, didn't uh, knew knew for certain that he had done this, and you know there's the conceivable possibility. I'm not saying this has happened because I don't think I haven't seen any persuasive evidence of this, but it's certainly conceivable in a case that's 25 years old that the event occurred, but that the uh, defendant doesn't remember it. Um, you know that could be for a lot of reasons. Um, time being passed. Uh, maybe a defendant, I'm not talking about Donald Trump, but any defendant could have had a lot of uh, negative uh, relationships with women over 25 years. And he can't remember this one in particular. If he can't remember this one in particular, then there can't be malice uh, if he denies it, um, even if it turns out to be false. So, you know, there are really, really serious issues here. Um, again, there's no doubt in my mind that if this man's name were not Donald Trump, this case would not have gotten as far as it got. Uh, there probably would have been a successful motion to dismiss. I doubt that the judge would have allowed in uh, the kind of evidence that he apparently is relying, uh, allowing in. Um, and is this part of Get Trump? Uh, as you know, <laughs> I'm an expert in Get Trump. Uh, uh, my book, uh, Get Trump, is all about concerted efforts to uh, get uh, Trump and to prevent him from running and to prevent him from winning if he runs. Now, this does not seem to be part of a concerted effort. I haven't seen no evidence to suggest that this woman is part of a conspiracy to get Trump. I have no idea what her politics are or, or, or anything. Um, according to her own testimony, uh, she said she had a good relationship uh, with Trump prior to this happening. They laughed together. They joked together. She was willing to, I don't remember, try on lingerie for, for him. It, she sounds like she uh, did things that she now, uh, she says she did things that she now uh, regrets. So uh, don't know what her motives are. The motives can simply be financial. The motives could be political. Um, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Uh, I, I remember even years ago, I was in a debate at uh, Radcliffe's, that's how long ago it was, part of Harvard then, uh, with Andrea Dworkin. I think the debate may even be on tape. I'm not positive. But at some point, uh, she asked uh, the students, there were probably, I don't know, a thousand students or 500, 600 students in, in that range, uh, many of them women, because Andrea Dworkin was quite a heroine to the feminist movement, how many of you had been raped? And I think about two thirds of the people in the audience raised their hand. Um, there is a phenomenon of um, 
of victimization where you want to be part of the victim class. You want to be able to say uh, you understand uh, this victimization. Now, a lot of women have been raped and rape is a horrible, horrible thing. And men who engage in rape should be punished to the limits of the law. And uh, but women who make false charges of rape should be punished to the limits of the law, as, as you probably know, the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, uh, as as interpreted by commentators. Uh, remember, one of the Ten Commandments is do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the commentators who interpreted that uh, interpreted it to mean that anybody who falsely accuses somebody of a crime should be punished in the way that the person would have been punished had he been guilty of the crime. So if you accuse somebody of rape and rape is punishable by 20 years in prison, a false accusation of rape should carry with it a punishment of 20 years in prison. I believe that. Um, and I believe that lawyers who conspire with uh, clients to make false accusations should uh, be disbarred and imprisoned, particularly if they suborn uh, perjury. I've taken that view for for many, many years, I took that view even before I was uh, falsely accused, and I will continue to take uh, that that view. Um, uh, having been you know, through an experience like that, I, I have tremendous compassion both for women who are really the victims of rape, uh, but I have no compassion, zero compassion for women who have made up stories uh, of rape in order to make money or achieve other uh, um, uh, goals. Um, uh, and I do have tremendous compassion for men or women who have been falsely accused of sexual uh, misconduct. I think there's a lot of that going around. I know a lawyer in California who says she uh, writes periodic checks uh, on behalf of um, well-known Hollywood people who are falsely accused of a sexual misconduct toward people who they never met, but it, uh, they know that um, uh, the publicity is worth $100,000. And so uh, they demand $100,000 not to make the story public. It's extortion, but extortion works. Um, didn't work with me and it won't work with me ever, um, but it works with a lot of people. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, you ask yourself the question, how much, how much, is it worth not to have a false accusation against you? The, the false accusation against me cost me, cost me, hold your breath here, cost me over $5 million to defend. It cost me over $5 million. So why wouldn't I have paid uh, an extortion demand of $100,000 or a million dollars? Um, because it would be the wrong thing to do. And uh, uh, if I did nothing wrong and I did nothing wrong, I won't pay a penny. I would never pay a penny. Um, uh, now, Donald Trump did settle some lawsuits, but he didn't settle this one. And the title asked the question, why didn't he settle uh, this one? Um, maybe he had no opportunity to settle it. I don't know uh, the facts and I don't know how this case will come out, um, but it could impact, obviously, his campaign. Um, it won't impact the voters in the MAGA group and uh, people who are uh, really part of the, the Trump. Uh, uh, you know, nobody other than Trump um, a campaign. But um, 
and it won't affect Democrats, but it might affect independents uh, who might say to themselves, look, uh, I generally think Trump's a better candidate. I'd rather vote for him. But if this allegation is true, if a jury determines it's true, that pushes me away from Trump and to the other side. So so all of that's all of that's possible. Again, I want to emphasize this is a series of hypothetical discussions about an event that I know nothing about. I have I didn't know Donald Trump back uh, a quarter of a century ago. I have no idea who he was, um, uh, what kind of a person he was back then. Of course, I'd heard of him. Everybody's heard of him in New York. Um, I used to ice skate on what was then the the, the Trump ice skating uh, rink, the Wallman Memorial Rink. And, you know, I knew who he was, but I don't know anything about him. And I have no idea whether any accusations against him that go back um, 25, 26 years are, are true. So I'm using his case merely as um, a hypothetical to discuss issues of statute of limitations, of defamation, uh, and of uh, how the law should deal with statements that were made uh, distantly from the alleged events, uh, like the statements about women allow me to touch them. Um, those are interesting issues that are raised by the Trump case, but they're not issues that uh, that um, um, I, I don't know uh, whether they have any specific application to Trump. Obviously, the statute of limitations does, and I think it unfairly was expanded to cover uh, Trump, and I think that does violate his fundamental basic due process rights to present a defense. Remember, the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, which is applied to the states, uh, requires that the states give a defendant an opportunity to provide a defense. Is that opportunity denied when uh, they expand the statute of limitations back 25 years or more, and uh, when evidence has been uh, destroyed, and when witnesses have died? Uh, how do you defend yourself against the 25-year-old charge? I can tell you from personal experience, it's not easy. I can also tell you from personal experience that it's possible and that anybody who's falsely accused should never, ever, ever pay a nickel in, um, in extortion. Uh, they should fight back. Uh, it takes a lot to fight back. And as I said, it cost me $5 million uh, to fight this back. Um, and um, I'm glad I did, and I'm glad it resulted in a woman finally acknowledging uh, that she may have confused me with someone else 25 years ago, or 20 in my case, 22 years ago, uh, that, that uh, it was worth it. Uh, I wish I didn't have to have spent uh, all that money and put all that time and effort uh, into it, but for me, the result was worth it. So let's wait and see, and I'll continue to report on the, on the Trump case. It probably will go another couple of weeks, and uh, uh, let's see what happens. Let's turn to some letters. We are no longer a centrist nation, not after the conservative right campaign and presidency of Don Trump, Donald Trump and the radical extremist leftist candidacy and uh, two and a quarter year presidency of Joe Biden. Formerly centrist, Biden used to oppose virtually all the radical neo-Marxist positions he now espouses. Why else would AOC come out in support of Joe Biden in 2023? She would never espouse, never support the, the Biden of, 2000, of 1989 or 1999. Now, you know, I knew Biden in 1980. I knew him in 1989. I knew him all through the 
um, period from 1980 to 2020 um, and, and currently. Um, and I don't think he is a Marxist uh, leftist. Um, he is a fairly typical uh, centrist uh, Democrat who understands that the party is moving leftward and is probably anxious to keep the party uh, support behind him. And so he has accepted some of the views and rejected others of the views. He's not AOC and uh, he's not the squad. And thank goodness for that. Okay. Um, would you consider a case mandating all voting machines are subject to audit to ensure fairness and transparency in elections? I remember you mentioning Dominion simply does not allow people to audit their machines, which seems extremely corrupt or ripe for corruption. I agree, and I'm involved in, in such a case. Uh, I think that every machine used to count the ballot should be subject to inspection by objective, independent, outside um, experts. And any time that any vote counting company sues anybody, uh, they waive any right of um, business privacy of the machines. And um, I so argued in the case, and I, I wrote a small portion of a brief making that point. And it's a point I continue to agree with, and a point that I think is very important because not only is complete integrity and honesty in elections uh, essential uh, to voting, but the, the, the appearance of uh, complete honesty is uh, equally important. And um, um, the American people are just not convinced that voting machines today are uh, as foolproof as the companies say they are. And, you know, we don't all live in Missouri, but, um, you know, the Missouri expression, uh, show me, you know, prove it to me. I'm a doubter. I am a skeptic. That's the American way. And I think the machine companies have an obligation to produce um, their machines for the most um, uh, extreme inspection that is possible to assure the American public that what they're getting is a fair count. I think they got a fair count <clears throat> in the 2020 election, um, but I know tens of millions of Americans don't, and they have to be listened to. And that's why it's so important that for the 2024 election, there'd be absolutely no doubt about the integrity of every machine used to count ballots and other kinds of electoral guarantees must be imposed to assure that the count is fair and the election is absolutely honest. I cry each time I read Kafka's The Trial. There's Kafka behind me in the kind of blue uh, Warhol uh, lithograph. Um, it almost seems we're in a terrible Kafka novel today. I thank God each time I listen to Professor Dershowitz. Thank you. He gives the life of our Constitution hope, and I have a strong feeling we'll be hearing a lot more of his true genius within the next three years. Mark, not my words, but Alan Dershowitz as well. You'll hear my views, uh, whether you like them or not, uh, as long as I have the ability to express them and as long as I have a platform to express them on. Obviously, my platforms have been curtailed. I've been canceled by uh, the left, by universities, but uh, not by YouTube and Rumble and not by you if you're watching me. So I appreciate that, but you're not going to shut me up so easily. I'm going to keep talking. Um, you met Ayn Rand. That's awesome. Yeah. 
I had this incredible professor at Brooklyn College. Brooklyn College, when I went there, between 1955 and 1959, was only slightly better than Harvard and Yale. Well, I would say maybe considerably better than Harvard and Yale. Uh, they were remarkable. Uh, New York City College, Brooklyn College, remarkable institutions. They were remarkable institutions because they had all the students that Yale and Harvard wouldn't take. And Yale and Harvard wouldn't take Jewish students, wouldn't take gay students, wouldn't take black students, wouldn't take um, women students, uh, Yale. Um, and so, and wouldn't take poor students, uh, economically poor students, wouldn't take immigrants. And so they all went to Brooklyn and City College. And Brooklyn and City College were, at the time, the best colleges in the country, perhaps the best colleges in the world. I'm not talking about necessarily from a research point of view but from a teaching point of view. And many of my teachers went on to become the most prominent professors at the most prominent colleges, which ultimately opened up. And uh, the students who couldn't go there for years went there afterward. And so I had a professor named John Hospers. It couldn't be two, two different, different people than me and John Hospers. John Hospers was the waspiest person uh, imaginable. He was a, a libertarian. In fact, he ran for president under the Libertarian Party, he ultimately became professor at University of Southern California. And he taught me, I tried to write him a letter a few years ago, and he had died just before I was able to draft the letter, just thanking him for what he had done for me. But he taught me how to teach. He taught me the Socratic method. Uh, in Hosper's class, there was no such thing as a right answer. Every answer provoked a different answer. And he was, as I said, a libertarian and uh, his hero was uh, Ayn Rand. And um, she was, I don't remember, this was 19, let's see, I probably took the course in 1956, maybe, or something like that. And she, what must have been in her 50s or 60s. And uh, I remember so vividly, she had this very slight, she spoke beautifully. She had a slight, slight accent. I don't remember what accent it was. It wasn't a British accent. Um, it was probably a middle European accent, but it had become Anglicanized and, uh, she spoke brilliantly and clearly. And, uh, of course, all of us in college all read her, the fountainhead and, you know, all of those great books, those were things that college kids were reading in those days, but then to have her come to class and, and I asked her a question and, and others, everybody in the class asked her, her questions, you know, about the limits of libertarianism, because we were tended to, the students in the class tended to be less libertarian and more, you know, uh, the government has some good things to do. We were children of um, the New Deal. And so it was a fascinating, fascinating uh, class. And I had many such classes at, at Brooklyn College. So I thank Brooklyn College very much for educating me, but I'm really angry at where it's gone now today. Brooklyn College has become a bastion of anti-Semitism, of anti-Israel attitudes, of closed-mindedness, and I've stopped contributing. I gave all of my papers worth certainly more than a million dollars um, to Brooklyn College and, and gratitude uh, for what it did for me. But I made that gift years ago, and I'm not sure I would have repeated that gift today in light of what I've seen on the Brooklyn College campus, the City College campus the um, uh, Hunter College campus, all these great colleges have been turned into propaganda mills where um, uh, Jewish students, uh, um, Zionist students, conservative students are not treated as first-class citizens. And uh, there is a narrative that's pushed and, and is, is extremely, extremely dangerous to, to education. And so um, 
you know, I, I bemoan the loss of um, uh, great institutions of, of, of learning. Um, um, inevitably, when you have institutions of learning, you get people with extremist views. When, uh, City College um, in the 1930s was a bastion of left-wing socialism, and there were communists there, too. There's the, the famous story, and pro probably true, but it could be apocryphal, of uh, a communist demonstration that was taking place in City College, and uh, the police came and were beating up the communists with their clubs, and they came across a guy, and he was holding a sign, and they beat him. And he yelled out and said, stop beating me, officer. I'm, an, I'm not a communist. I'm an anti-communist. I'm an anti, try to show him the sign. I'm an anti-communist. I came to protest the communists. I'm an anti-communist. And the policeman said, look, I don't care what kind of communist you are. And he continued to beat him. So there was a lot of that. And when I went to Brooklyn College, there was some of that there. Um, Brooklyn College at the time was called the Little Red Schoolhouse. The president of Brooklyn College, Harry Gideonese, was a fervent anti-communist and uh, uh, wouldn't give me a recommendation for law school because I defended the rights of communists to speak at. Big surprise that I would defend the rights of communists. Uh, 20 years later, I defended the rights of Nazis. So uh, I, <clears throat> I've defended some of the worst people and I'm proud of it. So uh, sorry for any of the technical glitches uh, that occurred, but um, uh, by next week, um, we'll have everything cleared up and um, you can send me letters. You can send me real-time letters uh, on YouTube, or you can send me letters that I will read on, on Rumble. So please keep uh, sending letters, and uh, I'll see you next week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.